We're starting a, a new series, the book of Malachi, when spiritual intimacy feels elusive. That's the title I sort of chose for this series. And I want to kind of set a bit of background tonight, so we won't cover, hopefully, everything in the notes. Why God shows his love to people in the first place, and the text is Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Is that in your notes, the text itself? All right, we're cooking. Malachi 1, 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi's the prophet. God speaks through the prophet. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What a text. A strange kind of thing to be studying on a Sunday night gathering like this. What, what in the world does a book most people have never even heard of outside of church settings, probably written roughly, give or take, 2,500 years ago to a Jewish nation, what does that have to do with a predominantly Gentile congregation at 1000 Gorham Street in Newmarket in 2022. To get at that, I want to look briefly at the setting of the book of Malachi first. He, because he speaks to a different time than a lot of the Old Testament prophets were used to. In years gone by, you can go back, we've studied some of the writings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those are the prophets warning of the coming judgment of the Lord on Judah. That's where you get, you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were all taken away into Babylonian captivity as the judgment of God comes on Judah. And then you have prophets like Isaiah, who predicted God would rise up Cyrus, the king of Persia, to deliver it, Judah from Babylon. It happened just that way long before Cyrus is born. God names him and says, this king is going to deliver you from Babylonian captivity. Then we know about Ezra. We know about Nehemiah, how they're used by the Lord to come back and rebuild the walls, the temple. And so gradually the people returned. Now you're getting closer to where Malachi fits in. Their return the temple's rebuilt, walls rebuilt. I mean, I'm saying it happened in a minute. There was a process there. They're in their own land. And here they were, the clearest example in the history of the world of a people God delivered by his sovereign power, naming the deliverer, bringing them back into their own land, And they never deserved a bit of it. It wasn't because they were suddenly holy and wonderful. 
that God delivered them and brought them back. He was just showing him, showing them his, his faithfulness to his covenant with his people. And, and it's right at this point that you get a good picture of what the book of Malachi is really all about. The way it starts is the way it continues. It's kind of a study in contrast. God remembers the covenant. They completely forget about theirs. That's the burden of Malachi's complaint. I mean, we, we know about this. Malachi's basic complaint is one we can, we can all kind of feel the logic of. How could it be possible that these people, so recently delivered, brought back into their own temple, walled city, how can they so quickly return to sin, rebellion, coldness of heart? I mean, that leads into the first part of the text. God goes over a basic word study on the meaning of love. What does it mean to say that God is loving toward us? What should it mean when I say I love God? It's really what the book of Malachi is all about. You'll see it in different ways. We need to think about this because, get this, here's something unique about the book of Malachi. Out of the 55 verses in the book, 47 are direct statements in the first person from God himself. Don't take that statistic lightly. I mean, there's no other prophet in the Old Testament who bears such heavy freight of the mind and heart of God. God just unfolds his heart here. There's another reason to study the book of Malachi. It deals with a time in Judah's history that maybe we can relate to pretty easily. Quite a bit like our own in some ways. We sing choruses. I sang songs in Sunday school about Daniel and the lion's den. I can't even imagine what that would be like. I find it hard to relate personally to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I find it hard to relate to the rebuilding walls of the holy city. I can only dream about what it would be like to be yanked out of my dwelling place, hauled away against my own will into pagan captivity. I don't relate to much of that, not very well, but that's not what Malachi is writing about. That's what makes his letter quite unique. He's talking about people moving into a new temple with fresh worship, but who still find themselves with cold hearts. And they're wondering where the blessing of the Lord is. Fifty years have passed since Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied about the coming of the Lord in deliverance. All the big projects, um, the big projects, the building of the temple, the city walls, they're basically all complete. There were no international crises to stir up the hearts of the people, but the prophetic word of the Lord was just growing rare and dim. All the hopes of the new world of righteousness and peace had died with the last generation So here are the people, no big military conflict, back in the temple, back in their own land. But their spirits are dull, numb, a bit indifferent 
Nothing much happening on the spiritual scene. They could talk about what used to happen in the days of Elijah and Elisha. Social values, morals of God's people were just increasingly like the culture around them. Does that sound familiar to you? Can you pull my mic down just a wee bit? It seems kind of echoey to me. That's the climate in which Malachi paints his message of warning and renewal. So i got a few points I want to go over tonight. And I want to have time for the interview and all of that as well. Point number one. Terrible spiritual ruin takes place when people fail to take to heart the love of God. It's in that second verse. There's something stunning in this little short verse. I have loved you, says the Lord. Look at this. But you say, the people, how have you loved us? Those responding words from the people have to be some of the most ridiculous words ever recorded. You're saying you've shown love to us? Where? How'd you ever show love to us, God? These are people who without raising a sword, have been delivered from the strongest empire in the known world, Babylon. They've been brought back into their homeland by their enemies, mind you. They've been given all the funds and supplies they needed to rebuild their own city. They couldn't afford any of it. It was supplied, divinely supplied. They've been able to reestablish their temple worship to their own God. These people, these people are saying, seriously, God, how have you shown any love to us? Now, something in me when I study the Bible, something says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I need to know something. I need to know, when I see a statement like that, the first thing I want to know is, How do people get that blind? What's happened to these people? Because it it seems a bit of a no-brainer, doesn't it? Certainly, if anyone could see the love of God, these people ought to be able to see it. Without even looking very hard, they ought to be able to see it. But they don't. They don't. These people go to the temple every day, as far as we know. They offer their sacrifices And they don't even sense the wonder of this unbelievable fact that their God offers pardon and cleansing for their sins. They're going to say later on in the book that their participation, get this, their participation in the temple worship is a bore. It's in Malachi 1.13. You say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it all, says the Lord of hosts. That's going to the temple, offering the sacrifices that God prescribed them. And they've, they, first, God, how in the world, what makes you say you love us? We don't, we don't sense any love. And this coming into the temple and the worship and all these routines and regulations, what a colossal bore, what a drag. I guess people get to feel that way about church. It's not a good sign. 
There will be many moral, spiritual failures. They'll be specifically dealt with in this book. But, but the first subject, what we're looking at tonight, the first subject that the Lord challenges them on is this issue of their unawareness of his love for them. Now, of course, they aren't showing any love for God, but that's not God's biggest concern right off the bat, surprisingly. The starting point in God's reproof is not that they don't love him. The starting point is they don't even sense that he has loved them. Maybe we need to think about that. It gets picked up, this idea in the New Testament, that there's this danger for a church like Cedarview. Where the apostle Jude, that's the brother of James, he's he's very careful to, to say, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude says that. Don't drift. He's not talking about your love for God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. He's talking about keep yourself in in the love of, of God. Keep yourself in God's love. And I think it's interesting to read this instruction from the apostle with the book of Malachi in mind. Jude's words have nothing whatsoever to do with causing God to love us. The apostle, in that whole book of Jude, he's writing about perseverance. Able to keep you from falling, that's Jude. He's talking about how you keep going, how you keep growing in the Lord. And he too starts, not with my love for God, as important as that is, but he starts with knowing relishing, cherishing, thinking about God's love for me. He says, that, that, Don, that is the fuel for everything else. So there's a keeping involved. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Probably shouldn't surprise us when you think about it. Of all the graces of the heart, love must be most kept and most protected. And, and, and it's, it's hardest to protect over long periods of time. Something that is cherished when it was new and fresh can be easily ignored and even disliked if you just get tired of it. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just telling you that there's, I see this experience over and over again as I talk to people, Christian people, Christian people who come and they want a divorce, separation, and they will find every argument in the book because they cannot stand to spend one more week together. Whoever's fault it is, And I always try and point out, you know, there was a time when you guys couldn't stand to spend one more day apart. You had to get married. I found the love of my life. I'm incomplete. Oh, how I want want to be married. I can't wait. Pastor Don, I got to get out of this. I cannot stay with this person one more day. What happened? 
Well, there's all sorts of circumstances usually, but love, it's not easily kept. It's not easily kept. Or think about the Israelites. We're studying later in their history in Malachi, but think about the Israelites being miraculously fed by God in the wilderness, and then you hear them grumbling to Moses. Are you kidding? Manna again? I am so sick of this manna. But that wasn't their first reaction to the manna. Go back to the beginning of the story. When it first came, God had to get after them because they'd go out and hog more than their share. They couldn't get enough of the manna. What happened? Well, he just kept giving it all the time. They didn't have to worry about it. Didn't even have to think about it. Didn't even have to thank him for it. And just hmm. keep yourselves in the love of God. Malachi, I have loved you. And you say, where, 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 where have you loved us? These blessed people, these delivered people, these restored people. So, indeed, keep yourselves in the love of God. It's no empty exhortation. Everything will pull your mind into a lower direction. Faith can't function when love dies. Point number two. God reminds the people just how committed he had been to them. It's in verses two and three. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And immediately everybody thinks of Calvinism and Arminianism, but that's not the point I want to make right now. This reminder about God choosing Jacob over Esau, it plays into the point that God is trying to make. Jacob and Esau were brothers, actually twins. More than that, Esau was the elder of the two, and that meant, if anything, he was the one more entitled to the inheritance. That's Paul's whole point in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Esau might have laid some claim to the covenantal blessings of God. He was, after all, the eldest, but Israel had forgotten how unearned her blessings were. All through her history, what should have been this constant source of devotion, humility, turned into kind of a false pride, entitlement, arrogance. Do you remember when Jesus came to try and do a work among the Pharisees and they screamed back at him, hey, we're Abraham's descendants. Don't you go talking about our needs. What what, what should have humbled them being chosen instead of Esau's descendants? What should have humbled them? What should have made them gratitude? What should have made them open up in praise to God made them arrogant and proud and self-reliant. That's always, that is always what happens when people forget just how much God loves them and how freely God loves them. Nothing will gum up the power and flow of the life of Jesus in my heart more than the way I respond to his blessing upon my life. Keep yourself in the love of God. Let me jump ahead to point number three if you're in your notes. What is the purpose of God's goodness, God's love? 
in my life? What is it for? And it's right at this closing point that we start to see the clearest sign of a new heart. When a heart isn't spiritually right with God, there are two faulty responses to God's love. These are bad signs, these two things. A, blessings are consumed with no thought of devotion. You can see it in that in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? They, they just have lost sight. There's God with his love, with his devotion, with all that he had done. Keep yourself in the love of God. They forget about God's love. How have you loved us? They're not thinking about it. They're not aware of it. So what happens? They don't serve him. They don't feel any obligation. They don't feel any devotion. They've forgotten how God had loved them, and in return, their own hearts are just numb, ungrateful, distant. They aren't cursing God. It's more subtle than that. So blessings become consumed with no thought of devotion when you forget about God's love. And B, another mark is that God's patience and grace gets turned into an excuse for further rebellion. There's there's something that maybe we don't think about as much, but the angels in heaven must gasp and shake their heads in disbelief. God, being who he is, the creator, owner, redeemer, of all that is, he, he, could, he could make all of us do whatever he wants. He just could. He's big enough and strong enough. He can force his will. Who's going who's gonna to stop him? But in truth, think about it. Think of how rarely God makes us do anything. And the second shocker is that God doesn't judge quickly, even in our rebellion. It's not amazing that I can tolerate my sin. That's not shocking. But God, absolutely stainless, blazingly holy, unblemished, without even the slightest quirk or thought that isn't absolutely holy, Now, here's the mark of a cold heart that doesn't appreciate God's love. It takes advantage of that kind of mercy. When I'm no longer moved by the vastness and freeness of God's love, I become full of self-indulgence and the satisfying of my own desire. I just presume on God's mercy without appreciating God's mercy. Okay, now we're starting to wrap up here. First, we need to get to the heart of the issue with the right questions. Why is God patient and loving toward us? Look how good he was to the people of Judah. 
why is he so good and so patient? What is the proper response to this kind of love, this kind of God? And the Bible has only one answer to that, and it's in Romans 2.4. This is the only answer to that question. Paul says, or do you presume, underline presume, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There's different ways of serving God. One is not much fun at all. That is, you, you see your obedience to God as a duty. There's the instructions. It's like getting the instructions from Ikea. Here's how you put the furniture together. Just do what you're told and follow the instructions. Here you got the instructions. Do what you're told. Follow the instructions. Or, or, you, you, you let your heart start to warm and sizzle. That God pours his grace and mercy into my life every day and lets me get out of bed in the morning and put two feet on the floor and go about my tasks. That he fills us with his spirit, that he's removed all my sin, that, that I don't have to qualify to go to heaven in my own righteousness. And you start to think about all that, and then, oh, what a delight to serve a God like that. Your heart, it's, it's not the list, the heart goes out. No wonder, Jude, keep yourself there. It's not just about your love for him. The root for that is thinking through and warming your heart with his grace and mercy in love for you because that's what fuels your devotion. Otherwise, you're just going to presume on his mercy, Paul says. Everyone said?